the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. Are you out there? Good morning, everyone. Are you there? Thank you. Um, We are um, into our next bit of John. Um, We're looking at John chapter 18, verse 28 to 19, verse 16. So tap to that on your phone or turn to page 1026. And if I can invite um, the people who are helping with um, today's reading to, to come up. Now, a lot of John, particularly uh, the last few chapters, aside from last week, has been mainly Jesus talking. Um, this passage is something um, uh, a bit different, and it really matters who is saying what and to whom. So to help us just distinguish between um, the different people, we've got Megan, who's the collective Jewish leadership. Um, we've got uh, Christine, who is pilot. And we've got Samuel, who is reading the words of Jesus. And then I'm filling in um, the gaps. So have the passage. It's going to be on the screen as well. Um, so yeah, let's read from John chapter 18, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
the Jewish leaders insisted. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away. Take him away and crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over uh, to them to be crucified. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. You would never have guessed we didn't actually run through that, so they did really, really well. We often hear the phrase, the trial of the century. Um, media coverage, we have musicals and plays and TV docuseries all about these big trials that we often have. We love the drama, the intrigue, the gossip. Now let me put uh, my theory to the test. I've got a very short quiz. Um, I'm going to show you an image um, of a famous trial and I want you to kind of shout out the trial if you know which trial it is. There's a hopefully something for everyone. Uh, this trial. Who knows this one? Shout out. O.J. Simpson, yeah, the murder trial of um, his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, in the 90s. How about this one? It's a bit niche Yeah, it was Boris Johnson and the illegal proroguing of Parliament in 2019. And how about this one? Jonas got it, yeah. Wha- <laughs> Not surprising. It's Wagatha Christie. Um, Rebecca Vardy, Clean Rooney... Um, uh, last year. Whether tragedy, uh, political shenanigans or celebrity gossip, how we react to famous trials like these, I think it says a lot about us. Now I've said that much of John's gospel is essentially Jesus monologues, but what we've just read is much more like a court transcript. This is Jesus on trial. And like any famous trial, I think has a lot to say about the people involved and about us observing. And I want us to think about three things about this trial. Power, price and presence. Now every criminal trial in history is all about power dynamics. There's the judge with all of the power and the accused powerless in the dock. Now this was first century Judea. There was no separation like we have between politics and the legal system. So that's why the religious leaders have brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. Judea had been under the occupation, the control 
of the Roman Empire for the last 90 years or so. But by cooperating with their occupiers, these Jewish elites had secured some independence, some power. Now, Pilate needs to keep them on board to help keep the peace. But if they push it too far, Pilate will take back all of their power. We find ourselves in a first century power struggle. The Romans and the Jewish leaders did not trust each other. They didn't like each other. Uh, They didn't respect each other. There was just animosity between them, but they had to work together to secure each other's own power. But neither side wanted to give in. Neither side wanted to concede anything. The local leaders, they didn't want to just kill Jesus, but discredit him, and so end his movement, which was threatening their regime. They needed a public, seemingly official execution. They needed an execution at any cost. But Pilate's not inclined to give them what they want. These are negotiations, tough negotiations. Notice how Pilate comes out of his palace four times to talk to them. The Judean opening gambit is to present Jesus essentially as a national security threat. Tapping into Pilate's paranoia, he claims to be the king of the Jews. He is plotting a coup against Rome. Pilate interrogates Jesus, but it doesn't take him long to realise that Jesus poses no threats whatsoever. I find no charge against him in verse 38. And this is a phrase that Pilate repeats several times throughout this trial. Now, Pilate's cunning plan is to release Jesus through a traditional prisoner release. But this backfires when the crowd chooses Barabbas instead, an actual national security threat. But Pilate's got a backup plan. He plans to give Jesus a lesser punishment. He gives him a flogging. You tend not to flog someone you're going to execute in a little while anyway. So his plan is to flog him and let everyone save some face. Chapter 19, verse 5. Here is the man, a broken, beaten shell of a man turning to mob rule and with no compassion the locals cry crucify crucify they also change the charge the first one's not worked so notice in uh, chapter 19 verse 7 he's not a national security threat to Rome after all he has to die because he claimed to be the son of God under Jewish law Despite trying to free Jesus, Pilate relents after the Jewish leaders threaten his political career. If you let this man, Jesus, go, you are no friend to Caesar. You're no friend to the Roman Empire that you seek to serve. Pilate and the religious leaders, they kept their power by abusing it. Do you relate to this? Do we sometimes feel that pressure, whether it's at work, whether it's friends, in school, college, to betray our principles, our values, to cling on to influence? Honestly, I can see my greed, my selfishness, my pride about whatever power I have 
Whenever someone challenges it or doesn't even acknowledge it, I kind of lash out at that. I'm not too sure I'm that different from Pilate. Look at any government, any business, any family, and we see the effects of people using their power and authority, good things in themselves, but at one time or another, using them for their own benefit at the expense of other people. Romans and Judeans were wrestling over conventional power, much like we do. But Jesus said something quite different. His approach is vastly different to our gut instincts. Jesus said, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is different. Jesus' approach to power is different. Jesus' agenda is different. All the way through this conversation, we're seeing that Pilate is thinking about earthly human kingdoms. And not long ago, we had our own celebration of an earthly human kingdom. You knew I was going to get this in somehow, didn't you? Um, We had our king's coronation. There were symbols and rituals that the likes of Pilate would very easily recognise. There we go. Uh, Recognition and homage. The king is presented and received by the people with cries of God save the king. We have the anointing with holy oil to bless and consecrate the king. We have the investing of royal purple robes and the crowning with gold and jewels. Now these rituals have since biblical times They've been used to proclaim and reinforce power and authority. But in the passage we've just read, we see how Jesus turns everything on its head. Here is your king is greeted with cries of crucify him. Rather than anointing, Jesus becomes ceremonially unclean by being in the pagan's palace. Jesus is invested with a purple robe, but not one of royalty, but one of an enemy soldier. And it's a crown not of splendour, but of searing pain. We want power to make ourselves bigger. Jesus became smaller. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Jesus gave up his majesty, even basic human dignity, in servant sacrificial leadership. These are the hallmarks of his kingdom. His kingdom is not of the world, but remember, it's active in it. We pray our battle cry is, your kingdom come. I ask, what are the crowns and robes of your life?
What are those things that you hold on to tightly to proclaim your power and authority? Are you prepared to trade those in for thorns, for jeers, for dirtiness? Jesus gave up everything in his mission for us. Are we willing to do the same for him? God has put each of us in positions of some power, some influence, some authority. I wonder, how does your management style at work compare to Jesus? How does your parenting approach at home compare to Jesus? How does your consumer habits on the high street or online compare to Jesus? How can we follow the example of Jesus' selflessness? In news coverage of trials, we often hear we want them to pay. There is this assumption that there is a price that needs to be paid. Trials are about justice for something that's gone wrong and we want to restore fairness. There's something within us that knows that. But what we've read is deeply unfair. Pilate himself tells us as much, I find no basis for a charge against him. They all knew that Jesus was innocent, but they had him executed anyway. Why, why did this happen? Why was this allowed to happen? Why didn't Jesus just miracle himself out of this one? Or the father just soften the right hearts? Did God lose control for this moment? No. As Saz taught us last week, Jesus was in command. And actually, this kind of dilemma that we have, it reminds me of a story that we find in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph. In selling him as a slave, Joseph's brothers inadvertently sent him to Egypt, where he would save everyone from famine. Joseph said to them afterwards, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Genesis 50, verse 20. Likewise, what we see here might look like a disaster for Jesus in our human perspective, but it's actually part of a bigger plan. Look at verse 32. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate's political manoeuvres, the chief priest's plotting and Judas's betrayal, they were the result of free will human agendas. But God intended them for our good, for the saving of our lives. We know that Jesus knew that this was his mission from the start. We see way back in chapter 12 of John, he says this in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
lifted up from the earth. This is Jesus predicting the kind of death, execution by crucifixion, that he was going to die in order to draw us into relationship with him. Jesus is facing a death sentence, but it's not his death sentence. It's our death sentence. D.A. Carson says that it is our guilt that brought Jesus to the cross. We would not have known pardon and forgiveness apart from the demonstration of the love of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Pilate and the priests are not responsible for Jesus' death. We are. To borrow some lines from a hymn, because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Starting at the beginning, God, in his love and genuine desire for a relationship with us, a genuine relationship, authentic relationship, he made people, he made us with the ability to choose him and his way. But we chose, people chose the alternative, to reject him, to do it on our own. We entered into a total rebellion against him, which we call sin. God is holy. He cannot be where sin is. God demands justice. All that is wrong meets his rage. That's our death sentence. We have to pay. Romans 6:23 begins for the wages of sin is death. And unlike Pilate's, this verdict would be correct. But, but the way of grace is that God himself in Jesus, in his love for us, bears the demands of his own holy justice. So Jesus became our sin and so bore the full extent of God's rage. He pays the price. In return, we wear Jesus' innocence. This is the saving of many lives and the drawing to himself. Nothing, nothing we can do can make God love us any more or any less than he does. Nothing we do changes God's verdict on us. It is entirely what Jesus has done. It's entirely what Jesus has done. There is nothing left to pay. So why do we keep trying to earn it by trying so hard? We can never be good enough, but we're never meant to be good enough because Jesus is good enough. Are you ready today to accept Jesus' free gift of innocence and life?
This might be for the first time. Or it might be that you've been a Christian for a while and you've realised you've been trying to pay down the debt. Let Jesus pay it all. Let's finally reflect on the concept of presence. Betrayed, abandoned, rejected, dirtied, assaulted, flogged, cut, humiliated, unjustly condemned. Jesus faced all of these things in the space of a few hours. Jesus is God's become human flesh, fully God and fully just like us. Last week, Saz was absolutely right by saying, we don't place, our, uh, place ourselves in the place of Jesus in the story. We don't achieve salvation by being betrayed and denied. We don't place ourselves in the place of Jesus. But Jesus does place himself into our stories, into our lives. Often, when we're going through a hard time, the last thing we want is someone with really good intentions saying, oh, I know how you're feeling. Because they don't really, not exactly. But they're not Jesus. He really does know. Not just because he's God and he knows everything, but because he's lived as a person. He's experienced this world just like we do. Not only has he gone before you, but he has promised to be with you always. If you've been betrayed or abandoned or rejected by those who are meant to love you and protect you, Jesus says, I know. I've been before you. I am with you. I love you. If you've been humiliated or been made to feel dirty or hurt by what others have done to you, Jesus says, I know. I've been before you. I am with you. I love you. If you've been wrongly accused or punished, Jesus says, I know. I've been before you. I am with you. I love you. For one reason or another, these last few months have been amongst the hardest in my life. Now, I don't know why bad things happen to us. I don't know why God lets these things happen. But I do know that God knows he understands, he's in control, and he remains with me. When troubles have left me spiritually winded, and I can't even muster words in prayer, I am comforted knowing that Jesus already knows. He is already with me. 
And this, this truth is uniquely Christian. No other religion says that God personally understands our suffering. Bruce Milne says, the presence of God in our suffering is one of the supreme distinctives of the Christian faith. We share everything with Jesus, even our suffering. Everything matters to him. We read in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Our comfort abounds through Christ. I wonder, are we avoiding the one who will comfort us knowing the full extent of our suffering? If that's you, come to him. Come to Jesus who shares in your suffering and in whom you will find comfort. We've not looked at the trial of the century. I think we've looked at the trial of eternity. We're called to follow Jesus' example in the face of human power games, to bring his kingdom through personal sacrifice. We're told to let him pay the price for sin. We cannot do that ourselves. And we are to rely on his presence when we face times of suffering. Let's pray. Powerful, loving, present King Jesus. We're challenged by your radical selflessness in the face of human power games. May we follow your example. We're grateful that you, in love and mercy, took our punishment so we're found innocent. We accept your gift of life today. We're comforted that you know firsthand the struggles we endure. We ask that you meet us in our suffering today. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.